In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've called this retreat a cloud of witnesses for, for the cryptic reason that it's the fourth retreat in this um, series that we're doing on the spiritual writers from the church's tradition. In the last home retreat, we looked at some of the writings of St. Dorotheus of Gaza, um, a desert monk of Palestine. It seems very apt at the moment, given what's going on in that place, and we might um, ask his prayers, I guess, for a peaceful resolution. Um, but St. Dorotheus of Gaza, who was just about um, a contemporary of St. Benedict. And I thought that today we might look at a different desert. In fact, what we might think of in Christian terms as the desert of all deserts, um, the Egyptian desert in its golden age. The monastic life was originally conceived of as an apostolic way of life, by which I mean, um, oddly enough, a way of life which resembled what was perceived to be the apostles' way of life. And the verses from the scriptures that are generally thought of as being the major inspiration for monastic endeavours um, come from the Acts of the Apostles. And an example would be chapter 2. It says, for instance, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. That's Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, and I think it's all there. The handing on of teaching from the spiritual masters, um, fellowship, in other words, koinonia, life in common, um, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, uh, prayer, common ownership, relieving the needs of the poor, and hopefully glad and generous hearts, a sense of joy. That's, that's the monastic life. Um, but nevertheless, as an organised way of life with precise regulations and so on, monastic life doesn't seem to originate in the very earliest period of the church. It comes slightly later. I guess the classic, almost sort of fairy tale version of events is that St Anthony, the great Egyptian monk, wandered out into the desert and became the first Christian monk, and the rest all flowed from there. Well, we know now that that's not quite true, the elements that are true. Um, but it remains true that Christian monasticism seems to have arisen um, in the Egyptian desert in about the third century and spread from there in, in subtly and, and ingeniously sometimes adapted forms, not just to Gaza, as we mentioned last time, and the Holy Land, but actually to many parts of the Christian world. You could even say the whole Christian world, really. Egypt then may or may not have been the formal birthplace of Christian monasticism, but it's reasonably safe to say that it was the first place where it really took off in a big way. Um, Alexandria, which strangely was sometimes considered as not quite Egypt, in Latin it was known as um, Alexandria ad Egyptum, Alexandria next to Egypt, well, it had been a centre of Jewish thought in the centuries immediately before the emergence of Christianity. For instance, there was the Jewish philosopher Philo um, of Alexandria. 
And it certainly retained and perhaps even developed its vitality as a religious centre after the Christianity began to spread. St Mark is usually considered as having founded the church in Alexandria and its bishop, archbishop, eventually became one of the five great um, patriarchs of the ancient church. It was a centre of impassioned and sometimes bitter debate on the various theological controversies um, of the time. It had a famous catechetical school um, where the priest Origen taught, someone who, notwithstanding some of his theological ideas, which are controversial to say the least, um, is probably the outstanding biblical exegete of his time and possibly even um, of all church history, really. Um, he's one of the extraordinary biblical interpreters whose influence has been enormous. Being a Christian in the Roman Empire, even in the slightly strange province that Egypt was um, of the Roman Empire, wasn't always without risk. Um, various of the Roman emperors, as we know, encouraged and sometimes even ordered the persecution of Christians. Um, and then the Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal in the empire, and there were big changes as a result. It's about this time, it seems, that monasticism, particularly in Egypt, um, seems to have got going, and we might ask why that is. Um, I think there are a lot of factors, and as usual with these difficult questions, there's probably not an easy answer. Um, but one of them is perhaps the fact that Christianity was now an accepted part of social life, at least potentially, um, because paganism was still pretty rife, um, according to these early monastic texts. And maybe that meant that people yearned for a more challenging ex existence um, as a Christian, I think there was also, as we might say, a yearning um, for a Christian ascetic life. Uh, and so it springs up. Um, though we may not now think of them as the absolute originators of these forms of life, you know, formally the first people ever to think of embracing them, um, there are basically two Egyptian figureheads for these different styles of monastic life, St. Pacomius on the one hand um, and St. Anthony on the other, St. Anthony the Great. St. Pacomius is regarded as the first great organiser of not we, what we now think of um, as the Cenobitic monastic life, um, the common life. Koinos bios in Greek means, means common life, doesn't it? Cenobios, Cenobitic. Um, the common life then lived by those seeking to dedicate themselves in a particular way um, to following the precepts of the gospel. In the writings of St. Pacomius and in the communities that he founded, which were enormous, um, and a large number of them too, um, there's a concentration on this notion of communion, the life of communion of the brothers. Um, koinonia is um, the word that was used to describe the communities. Um, and these, as I said, very large communities tended to be, um, to be founded along the River Nile, which obviously is the sort of M1, really, of ancient and, and possibly even modern Egypt. Um, and that helped communication, yes, with the outside world when it came to selling things um, to make money, uh, notwithstanding the large um, enclosure walls that the Pacomian houses had, um, but also between the different monasteries. Um, they all knew what was going on in, in each monastic house. Pacomius. Antony, on the other hand, is quite different. Um, he's regarded as the earliest figurehead for the eremitical or hermit life um, within Christianity. Christian hermits are sometimes called anchorites, and this comes from um, the Greek word anachoresis, which means withdrawal, 
drawing back, retreating, something like that. And the aim here was not to create alternative Christian societies, communities in that sense, but rather to withdraw from human society uh, in order to be able to seek God in a particularly concentrated way as a result of a call from God, um, evidently. The early Egyptian anchorites tended to live not along the Nile, um, like their Pacomian counterparts, but rather in inhospitable and inaccessible places in the vast deserts. And there are various um, hermit settlements in ancient Egypt that we might like to bear in mind if you get round to reading the text which has been produced. Nitria, um, modern Wadi al-Natrun, was, was one of them. Um, Cetus is another, and Kelia would be a third. There were more, but in terms of the texts that we will discuss, they would be the three places um, which are particularly mentioned. There was a tendency for hermits to live relatively near um, to one another, I guess, so that they could speak to one another in, in appropriate times. And the irony, I guess, is that the way of life of these hermits, who were fleeing human society, after all, um, was so attractive and so, I don't know, beguiling, I guess, to some, that it drew many people to them. True, people seeking to become hermits themselves, but also people who were seeking their advice. So much so that, according to St. Athanasius, the Patriarch of Alexandria, who wrote a life of St. Anthony, which idealizes um, the figure of Anthony, really. Um, he says the desert became a city um, because of the great numbers of people opting to take up the hermit life there. Well, the lives of these early hermits were marked with an emphasis on the importance of silence, or in Greek, hesychia, and an extreme devotion to what we would nowadays think of as the monastic vow of stability, um, a commitment really to persevere in one place and not to move around. Of course that one place, the cell, um, could be a bit like a furnace um, and there were inevitable temptations to flee away from it. There was a real need for perseverance, perseverance and also encouragement from others um, in times of particular trial, an acknowledgement that probably I don't have within myself all the resources I need um, to put up with a particular hardship or a difficulty or to endure a particular trial. I need the grace of God and sometimes that will be mediated through the assistance of my brethren, those who live around me. As we said, the dedication and the pretty much heroic virtue, not to mention holiness, um, of these early hermits drew many people, bishops and civic dignitaries among them, um, to consult the hermits on spiritual questions and of course there were also many religious tourists who came um, eager to snatch a glimpse of these desert uh, curiosities. In the writings about the hermits, which is what we'll examine today, or rather you will examine hopefully because I haven't really left enough time to, to read out vast swathes in this talk, um, there's an emphasis on thoughts, logismi, they're called in, in the Greek. Um, and maybe the premier um, monastic writer on thoughts of the time is a monk from the Egyptian desert called Evagrius, and he may feature here um, in the future. It's probably somebody that deserves a look. Um, but important just to say there was a clear distinction in the minds of these monks between thoughts um, on the one hand and sins on the other. Um, but there was also a clear understanding that there was a connection between these two. The emphasis really um, for these monks was on perceiving what was going on in the heart, which is where thoughts live, in case you wondered, um, but also understanding what was going on. 
so that unsuitable thoughts could be dealt with in an appropriate way, precisely so that they didn't lead to sin, to behaviour which in the end was not going to fulfil us um, as human beings. Um, and to avoid really the unhappiness that goes with that lack of fulfilment, that sense of futility. There was an, also an emphasis on revealing thoughts, um, which makes some of us shiver a bit, um, to a spiritual elder, somebody who would be able to help us in that business of understanding what, was, what the thoughts meant. And despite appearances, we shouldn't think of that really as a sort of version of the sacrament of reconciliation. I don't think it was. Though clearly there were common elements. Apart from anything else, it wasn't necessary for the spiritual elder to be a priest. Um, it had to be somebody trustworthy, um, somebody whose judgment the, the monk or other person who was going there um, trusted. The principal role, really, of revealing the thoughts to the elder was, on the one hand, um, to lead to growth in humility. Um, you had to accept yourself as you really were, and the notion that maybe you didn't really believe something to be true about yourself unless you could say to somebody else that it was true, uh, with your hand on your heart sort of thing, or with a straight face, or however you want to put it. Um, and what better way um, than to go to the spiritual elder and tell him about some of the, um, the deep, dark secrets of the heart at the right time, clearly. And on the other hand, the role really of revealing thoughts was to provide a sense of perspective. These hermits knew very well uh, the intoxicating power of these thoughts if they were allowed to remain cooped up in the mind, in the heart. And they knew that their thoughts could lose some of this power if another person was brought in um, to the story. This person could help the one being afflicted by the thoughts to see the bigger picture, but also to understand that they were only thoughts, possibly that they were quite common, um, they could strengthen the one who was being afflicted um, by the thoughts so that a positive choice could be made. They knew really that we are not our thoughts. Uh, we're not our thoughts. And not every thought that arises in our heart um, is a good and beautiful and useful thing. If you don't believe me, you see what Jesus has to say about them in St Mark's Gospel. Um, and they also knew and were keen that we shouldn't live at the mercy of our thoughts. We have to be in control. It's part of the freedom that comes um, with Christian discipleship. We have to be free to decide what to do, not just doing things like machines because our thoughts tell us. There's a real sense, I think, in which modern psychology is foreshadowed somehow in some of this um, early Christian monastic thinking, and maybe that's not surprising. After all, um, a healthy psyche is part of a healthy life, including a healthy spiritual life. Well, um, we're getting to the meat in the sandwich now. Um, these hermits, when consulted, often came out with wise um, sayings. They sound a bit like things that we might think of from Elijah and Elisha um, in the books of Kings. Uh, and these sayings, or little stories or what have you, were, were collected and passed around, I guess originally orally, um, by their disciples and supporters and, and fans, um, but then subsequently written down in collections, often in Greek, um, which was the educated language of Egypt at the time. Um, and somehow these collections made their way up to Jerusalem, which after all is, is not all that far away, sort of around the corner, isn't it really? Um, and in Jerusalem there was a well-known monastery where both Greek and Latin were spoken. And many a Greek text, if it was worth translating, was there translated into Latin, and obviously Jerusalem at the time, as now, is a major centre of pilgrimage. 
And so you had many people from all different parts of the church coming through, and maybe they would go to this monastery, um, including monks and nuns who were on pilgrimage. And what happened was the texts were then copied and taken back. So really this monastery in Jerusalem was a great sort of center of diffusion of these texts. And from there, um, Latin and Greek texts of these sayings of the Desert Fathers, as we can call them, um, spread throughout the whole church of East and West, and it really became immensely popular. Well, onto what these sayings are about, really, and what they're like. Um, in a sense, I think they're inspired, and they refer to a particular time uh, and in a particular place, and they're addressed, of course, to a particular individual. Uh, it will say, someone asked Abba Antony, blah, blah, blah. Well, the saying, in a, in a sense, is addressed to that someone who asked him at that particular time, uh, in that particular context. Um, but they can have an ongoing relevance for us as well. And maybe the best way to use them is to see whether, when we're reading a particular saying, anything strikes us, um, and then to reflect on why that might be. Why are we having these particular resonances in our own heart? Um, some of them are undoubtedly wacky, um, like the one where somebody wants to know from St. Anthony whether he ought to become a monk and keeping a little bit of money for himself just to look after his own needs. Um, and St. Anthony says, that's fine, but before you become a monk, um, go to the market and buy some meat and, and put it on your naked body and, and lie around. And he gets sort of torn to shreds by the wild animals and the birds and then goes back to St. Anthony who says, um, if you try to become a monk and keep the money, that's what the demons will do to you. Um, a, a bit odd. We perhaps take the point and we wonder whether the, the meat was needed. But um, while some of them are undoubtedly wacky like that, more usually um, these texts are marked, but I would want to say, by various characteristics. Firstly, their brevity. Um, many of them are a couple of sentences long. No more. Um, some of them are a couple of paragraphs. They're very pithy. Um, and again, they do remind you of some of the little stories that come about Elijah and Elisha. Maybe that's, maybe that's um, conscious, you know. Elijah listened to the still small voice in his cave. Um, there's a parallel, isn't there? Um, there's a great sense of zeal um, in these stories and the notion that the monastic life and the Christian life is really an all-in um, endeavour, not for the half-hearted, really. There's a great sense of their love of God um, and of Christ and the notion that really this comes from experience, you know, it's not that they're in a sort of theoretical way trying to live out a strict life in the hope that if it's bread and water now, um, it'll be tea and cake in the world to come. It's not that. They've experienced God and their life is a response. It's not a blind, uh, you know, hope, a wager. If I afflict myself now, there'll be comfort for me in the future. It's not that. Um, thirdly, there's a sense of balance, despite the story about the, the raw meat um, there's a sense of balance, um, but there's also a recognition that in life, balance is hard won. And it's not something that we trip over, it's something we have to work for and practice. Um, then, fourthly, they know human nature, and perhaps especially monastic human nature, very well um, indeed. There's an emphasis on self-knowledge. And sometimes the notion that our spiritual blind spots mean that some key pieces of self-knowledge for us won't come um, from ourselves, they'll come from others. Not unconnected, they're also very compassionate, usually. Um, there's a real sense of wanting to lead others to something good, not just criticise them for something bad. Usually they're wise, 
I would want to say, and there's a great honesty. There's a great honesty in them. Frankness, you might even say. Well, there are two basic sorts of collections of these things, and they're the alphabetical collections, which, oddly enough, are in alphabetical order of the person who said them. So, you know, Abba Antony, Abba Arsenius, Abba whoever, going on just in, in the order of the Greek alphabet. And um, some of them are attributed um, to particular individuals, obviously all of them in the alphabetic collection, but there's also a systematic connection. And here they're not grouped in order of um, author, but in terms of they're grouped by theme. So on what it meant for the fathers um, to make progress, on humility, on restraining the passions, you get the idea. Um, and within these groups, some of the sayings belong to particular fathers. They're attributed to a particular person, but others are anonymous. Um, they'll just begin by saying, an old man said, or an abba, which is the word that gets used for a, a spiritual father in the desert, or Amma, if it's a mother. Um, or it might just say, the fathers used to say. And really, this grouping in, in themes helps us to understand precisely what themes were important for the ancient monastics um, in Egypt, and perhaps, therefore, themes that might be important for us, um, too. And when in the rules, St. Benedict talks about reading the lives of the fathers, Vite Patrum, um, he's referring to collections of these sayings, um, which, which can be found in, in the books of Mean, which are just over there in our, in our library. Um, apart from because St. Benedict tells his disciples to, um, why then might we read these texts today? Well, from my own perspective, I suppose I've sort of rediscovered these texts in preparing to give this retreat, and I'm grateful for that. I had a sense that it's pretty basic and fundamental, foundational reading, really, for anybody that's interested in the monastic way of life. Um, but maybe I'd lost my personal connection with them. And they'd cease to mean as much to me as they might. And having reconnected through reading them for this, um, I think my own answer to the why read them question would be because they can be inspiring. Uh, inspiring. Most fundamentally, I think the monastic life is a means of learning the way to God from others. Uh, others who usually are further along the way than we are ourselves um, from their experience, in other words. Um, and when we read the apothegmata, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, um, we meet people faced with problems and struggles and conundrums um, that probably we will all face, or maybe even have faced already um, at some time. And true, the stories we read can give us practical advice on how to navigate the way forward through a particular problem, certainly. Uh, but maybe more to the point, they can simply inspire us when we read the accounts of others' um, performance, how they went on in, in trial and tribulation, it can give us the strength to face up to our own difficulties and to realise that with the help of God it is possible. Uh, I think for monks and nuns in particular, um, the sayings remind us of the essential core, the real uh, spiritual kernel of what our life is about. And they give us an image, I would want to say an attractive image, if a challenging image, um, of what that life might look like when lived firmly, uh, fervently and wholeheartedly. It allows us really, in a sense, to, to recalibrate. Well, uh, the last instruction really in this overly long talk is just to read some for yourself. Um, as usual, in the link um, in the description below this video on YouTube, or if you're not listening on YouTube, um, but on one of the podcast um, sources, you can get it from the Abbey website, is, uh, I'm afraid, 38 pages of A4 of sayings of the Desert Fathers. 
from the systematic collection. So you'll see there are 18 books on, on different topics. Um, if that sounds daunting, each little saying, of course, is just a, a very short paragraph, maybe even one sentence. Um, my own sense is that there can be an addictive um, nature to reading them. We tend to want to go on reading them. They're quite intriguing. They're written in quite an inviting style. Um, but really just to read them and, and see what you think, uh, and particularly to, um, to reflect if they, if they seem to resonate with you in some way. I think there's some inspiring teaching in there. Um, it would be interesting to hear your, your thoughts on it, really. And the last thing I would say is, again, I'll put it in the description on the YouTube video. Um, if you're interested in Egyptian monasticism at the beginning and maybe these, these Desert Fathers and, and so on in particular, then there's a very good book um, by somebody called Harmless um, called Desert Christians. Um, again, I'll put an Amazon link to that in the, in the description so you can find that easily. The, the excerpts, they're not all of them that I've put in the text that I've given you, you, but you'll see that I've kept the original numbering so you'll be able to see where I've skipped over um, some of the sayings. They're pretty extensive, 38 pages of A4, um, but it's not all of them. If you want all of them, probably the easiest way to get a translation is the Penguin um, edition called Sayings of the Desert Fathers, um, translated by Be Sister Benedicta Ward, who's a great scholar of the, of the Desert Fathers. And lastly... Um, there's, a, there's a, an important text I would want to say by a modern monk called Father Columbus Stewart on radical self-honesty, this business of revealing um, thoughts um, to a spiritual elder. Um, it's an article about that, which I think is, is important reading. So I'll, I'll put a link to that too um, in the description. And really now, um, it just remains for me to wish you a blessed day and wish you luck really in this quest um, as you plunge into the, the great, I would want to say, very fruitful writings of the Egyptian desert. God bless you.